0: Hey everyone, did you know NeuroDiverging now offers a free support group for autistic parents, monthly free live classes on neurodivergence-related topics, and a coaching corner twice a month on Instagram? Learn more and sign up for all of our learning opportunities at neurodiverging.com slash upcoming events. Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to NeuroDiverging. Hello, and welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. I'm Danielle Sullivan, and I'm so happy to be back here with you after our recent break. I've got a lot of great shows coming at you in the next couple of months, so please click subscribe if you haven't yet to make sure you don't miss any episodes and find show notes and more at neurodiverging.com to welcome us back today's conversation is with laura reaver founder of progress parade an online special education tutoring company with her lifelong interest in psychology and problem solving laura initially began her career as a school psychologist before following her passion for supporting each student as an individual to create her tutoring company progress parade laura is a wealth of knowledge about special education learning disabilities and challenges and how to navigate the public education system to get the most for your child In this interview, we're discussing what a school psychologist does, the difference between how a school evaluates a child and how a medical team does, how a child's diagnosis can impact the services they receive at school, and the rights of the parent around school evaluation. We're also talking about some common supports a school can offer to a neurodivergent child. I learned a ton from this interview, and I hope you do too. Want special access to the patrons-only after-show and many other members-only perks? Consider pledging a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars a month to fund the Neurodiverging podcast. Find out more and pledge today at Patreon.com/Neurodiverging. Thank you for your support. And here's our interview. Step into the world of power loyalty. at luckylandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Welcome to NeuroDiverging, Laura. It's great to meet you. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I'm so glad you're here. So you are a school psychologist. Now you tutor special education and other kids with additional needs outside of the average school system. And can you let us know a little bit about how you began to specialize in tutoring students with learning disabilities, especially? Of course. Yeah.
1: So I was working as a school psychologist in the school setting in a public school setting. And I just repeatedly saw that it was really tough to really meet diverse learners needs in the school setting. I think one great way to do that is one on one. And so when I was thinking about other things I could do outside of the school setting, I realized that in graduate school, my number one passion was always what we called um, the academic intervention clinic at grad school or, the, or tutoring, essentially, high-quality tutoring. So I started tutoring on my own outside of, outside of my school-based job, after school and before school, and loved it so much that I decided to make a career out of it. It was
0: exciting. Awesome. So you really are a kind of passion-driven to this. Yeah, for sure. And what originally got you into psychology? So I
1: originally got into psychology, I think, because I was thinking about this recently, like what, this feels like so long (laughs) ago, where, where did I get into psychology? I, I come from a family of math and science people, like just a whole lineage of engineers and statisticians. And I like science, but I also was always drawn to like helping people too. So I was like, what's the like science plus helping people. And I think that's, how I was originally drawn to studying psychology in undergraduate. And I did also study computer science in undergraduate too. So I kind of got to see, you know, the science from both ways. Like what is human psychology like? And what is like, what is like automation look like too? It was interesting to kind of see both lenses.
0: It's really cool. It sounds really interesting to be comparing those. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then what about school psychology specifically? Cause that is kind of a, a very specific niche it's very specific. And I actually don't think I
1: realized how specific it was when I started studying it. I was working after, um, after I studied psychology, I was working in foster care. So I was a foster care case manager and I knew that wasn't my long-term career path Mm -hmm. for many reasons. So when I was thinking about what's my next step, obviously in foster care, there's a lot of at-risk kids, a lot of students who are experiencing various kinds of, at-risk factors, like yeah. not only learning disabilities and IEPs, but socioeconomic factors and obviously home factors are huge for students in foster care, um, continuity and, and things like that. Their, their lived experience is a huge part of what they're going through. So I was like, how can I reach these students the best? Like, And I thought, well, the school, they're at school all day. You know, most students do attend school. So it's a great kind of place to meet students where they're at. And it's in some, for some students, it's the most consistent environment they're in. If they are, for example, foster students might change their home environment a lot, but sometimes they are able to stay in, in the same school setting. So I thought it would just be a great place to impact students that needed it. And so that's why I thought like school psychology, that's a good, a good place to see a lot of students and to help them is at the schools.
0: Yeah. Working as a school psychologist, you get a lot of insight into obviously all the different factors that go into student learning. And I know that now you specialize in learning disability and like kids with neurodivergence, autism, ADHD, those kinds of things. So can you tell us a little bit about what a school psychologist does in terms of those kids?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I think a lot of people don't know what a school psychologist is. I think even people that are teachers or that work in academic settings might have some confusion around it. So I'm really happy you asked that question. The most traditional way that people know about school psychologists or the most traditional role that school psychologists often occupy is the tester. You know, yeah. like if a student has um, has been referred for an evaluation to see if they need a special learning plan or individualized education plan (an IEP to meet their education needs, then a school psychologist is a big part of that testing process. Usually we test their cognitive ability or their IQ is another way that people talk about that. Their academic skills. Sometimes we assess social emotional skills and then help determine what their needs are. And if they do have a disability or if, or if they are eligible for that IEP yeah. is another way of thinking about it. So that's one, that's like kind of the most common thing we're known for. I think some people get confused, like what's a school psychologist versus a school counselor or a school psychologist versus a social worker. School psychologists really have a specialty in that testing piece. We also are trained to do social emotional interventions, so mm-hmm. we could do. In some districts, school psychologists do social work minutes or counseling minutes, which is I think something that many school psychologists want to be doing more of. We don't yeah. want to be seen as just testers. <laughs> that is kind of our most common role, though, and we know a lot about the systems. You know, mm-hmm. we know we, we get a lot of training in systems change and in systems development, so. I think many of us get involved in, I don't want to make this like alphabet soup acronym world, but <laughs> for people who know what response to intervention is or the multi-tiered support system. So giving those giving kids multiple levels of support based on their needs in the school setting, we love to get involved in that too. So really broad role, really different from school counselor or social worker, but you know, I'm passionate about it. I think it's a role that we yeah. really need. And I think um, many districts are trying to really increase the the number of school psychologists their districts have so that their students can get more, you know, get more presence with the school psychologists yeah. so they're not spread between five buildings as they mm-hmm. have, have been historically.
0: I know I didn't even know we had a school psychologist until <laughs> kind of going into the IEP meeting initially, the first one ever, because I think... At least in our district currently, it is sort of that more testing, evaluating role. And it would be great if parents knew that they were there as a potential resource or someone to check in with, you know, occasionally. So it definitely Definitely. an important role.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think more and more, I mean, the National Association of School Psychologists is definitely advocating for a smaller student to school psychologist ratio than what currently exists. Um, And I think that's the right move. You know, mental health, we're realizing just how important it is. I think having one school psychologist per building is, would be great because I think a big part of the problem, even special ed teachers not knowing about us is because yeah, we, a lot of times we are in a couple of buildings and we just show up for the meetings and that's pretty yeah. much what we do, you know, and that's too bad. They think we're capable of so much more than that. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the special education professionals are having the same trouble. Where you know you're in one building, the OT is in another building. You never see each other, and how are you right. supposed to build a relation, a working relationship based on right? That schedule? And that's so important to collaborate for student needs in that way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, great, thank you. And you talked a little bit, or you sort of started to talk about this, but I know that at least when my son was diagnosed with autism, we got an educational diagnosis and a medical diagnosis, and a couple of other kind of framed <laughs> things. Mm-hmm. That But can you talk a little bit for the parents, a lot of parents who are listening have children with some kind of something that would count as a learning or an educational challenge. So what's the difference between a learning disability like diagnosis compared to an autism or an ADHD evaluation where you go in and you get this, you know, 10 page report on what's going on with your kid? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's kind of two questions folded in there, I think. Mm-hmm. Per, I think or two distinctions that might help parents. One is there's the private route versus mm-hmm. the educational route. So many parents do get evaluations that they that their insurance pays for, that they privately pay for, and a lot of times the words that come out of those evaluations are different from the words that an educational evaluation will use. For example, this is changing a little bit with the current DSM. And as that starts yeah. to kind of filter down into people's language, but for a long time, people used to say dyslexia mm-hmm. and dysgraphia and dys- dyscalculia too. So that's reading disability, learning disability in reading, learning disability and writing, learning disability and math if you map the medical or the private diagnoses onto the educational diagnoses, Mm -hmm. those are the same. They're just different words, which I think is really confusing for people. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, why does my student have dyslexia or do they have a learning disability? Like what's the difference? You know, that can be really confusing. So, you know, I I do talk to parents a lot that dyslexia is in the private world is a learning disability in reading or writing and, and, or writing really in, in the educational world. So sometimes the the labels that kids get privately is, does not exactly map onto an educational diagnosis. So I think that's an important thing for parents to understand. It's really good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I think the other thing is kind of what's the difference in a school setting. So, you know, if parents want to look into this, if you look, if you Google, like, and I don't know if you have show notes, we could share, share these oh, yeah, in show notes, absolutely. but yeah, if they, look, if they want to look at the um, IDEA or the Individuals with Disability Education Act, their labels, they can see all the different um, disability labels that that IDEA has defined. And actually, learning disability and autism are both in there, and mm-hmm. the labels. ADHD is not in, in IDEA's disability categories. So if a student does have ADHD and does need an IEP, or they do need to qualify for services, then that has to be mapped somewhere else in those labels. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yes, often it goes in other health impairment, which is one of the labels. And sometimes it goes to to emotional the the terminology the idea uses is actually emotional disturbance, which I find to be way too strong. Of Not great, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am like that's some school districts just kind of skirt past that and call it emotional disability, which yeah. I which is better, but it, actually an idea, it says emotional disturbance. I'm like, who is petitioning to change that language? Cause we need to get like right on that. But anyway, that's kind of the two places that ADHD gets mapped. Sometimes I think it more often gets mapped to other health impairment, but really essentially, I mean, technically the way I view it at least is that it's more about what services the kids are getting. So the educational diagnosis does matter. Obviously you want your kids to have the accurate diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Cause it's the language that people are going to be used when they using, when they talk about your child yeah. or your student, but it doesn't have to have a huge impact on the services that they get. Ultimately a student with an autism diagnosis could get very similar services to a student with an ADHD diagnosis, or, which would again, follow their probably other health impairment mm-hmm. in, in school. So yeah, like those services could look very similar with the same diagnosis because an IEP is always defined by the student's needs and not by the disability. So yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. (laughs) Yes,
1: you're welcome. (laughs) I'm glad.
0: (laughs) So a a parent going into a school system wanting services for their child is really looking for an educational diagnosis and doesn't necessarily, is it true that they don't actually need a medical diagnosis to pursue that, but medical diagnosis is just kind of supportive documentation, would you say?
1: Yeah. So every parent has a right to request an evaluation from their school, whether or not there's already a a label of any kind, I think, you know, and, and, and you do need to do that in writing. If you, if you did suspect your student needed support at school through an IEP or um, even a 504 plan, which if we, To just talk about that high level, IEP is usually services like social work or special ed minutes. And a 504 plan is usually like accommodations, like extended test time or extended, um, like turning in homework with an extended deadline, things like that. So if a parent did think their child needed those supports, they should request in writing and evaluation. And I would just to make it simple, I guess I would give that to the principal or the school administrator. Ideally you would give it to the school psychologist because yeah. they know most what to do with it, but it might be, you might not know who that person is mm-hmm. <laughs> and they do need to respond to you. So I, you know, parents need to know that it's their right that they get a response to that request. The school doesn't have to agree to do it, but they do need to respond and tell you if they will or if they will or won't and why. So to go back and answer your question, knowing that information, essentially, if they already have an outside evaluation and diagnosis, that is more evidence that the school should should do their own evaluation. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessary if you want to request an evaluation without that and see what the school says, that's totally possible and they might do it. And, and, you know, at that point it's, that's a free evaluation to you. It's paid by tax dollars to make sure that every kid gets a fair education. So that's kind of a nice benefit of that, as opposed to a private evaluation. It doesn't have any cost
0: associated with it. So, and having worked as a school psychologist for such a long time, do you have any sense of what kinds of support are most often offered by the school to a kid with autism or ADHD or any of that kind of broad spectrum of learning disability?
1: Sure. Yeah. So autism, students with autism often have, um, as your listeners probably know, they often, they often have social, social needs. They often Mm -hmm. have language needs and they often have, you know, they often have learning needs, not always. So students with autism, you know, I would say often see a speech language pathologist at school. Their school does have those. Each school has one, at least one who services students there. So, providing speech language goals at their level at their specifically for their needs is one common service. Social workers also exist at every school. So providing social work minutes to help students with their social skills, again, at their level, help students, you know, make transitions or any kind of social, emotional or behavior goal would usually fall to the social worker. And then whatever academic goals they have, you know, a lot of students with autism have Average academic skills, a lot don't, you know, so it just depends on, on what they need academically to be making progress mm-hmm. towards grade level. And then ADHD, I'd say a big one again is with the social work, executive functioning goals, or learning to ask for a break if you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times students with ADHD and actually also with autism might have occupational therapy consult minutes or service minutes to be able to help with sensory processing, to be able to provide them with like fidgets or other things that they might need to be successful in their school environment from a sensory standpoint, that usually falls to the occupational therapist, occupational therapists also sometimes work on like handwriting, like Mm -hmm. students with all three of these um, disabilities often struggle with fine motor skills. And so that's, that would usually fall to the occupational therapist to work on those. And obviously Learning disabilities usually are some academic goals. So, you know, if it's a reading disability, then often they're going to be working on decoding or reading comprehension or, um, you know, spelling or, or writing skills. So, those would all fall usually to the special education teacher. So, yeah, there's a lot of services that are available and it is specifically to the, the child and their needs, which is exciting.
0: That's great. Thank you. I think I've heard a lot of questions from parents who have listened to the podcast and are sort of trying to figure out, is this IEP actually useful or like, what can I ask for? (laughs) Or what should I be asking for in addition to what maybe the school is offering? Because some teams are fantastic and some teams are overworked or overwhelmed or yeah, and the IEPs aren't as great. So just getting the sort of gist of some of the things that are available potentially, I think is really helpful to folks. So thank you.
1: Great. Yeah, I think it's helpful to know who, I think it can be really overwhelming that first meeting to the evaluation meeting, you yeah. have all these people at the table and you're like, because you usually have the nurse, the social worker, the occupational therapist, the speech, language pathologist, an administrator from the building, the school psychologist. It's very overwhelming. So it's it a lot of people. To, yeah, <laughs> it can be helpful to kind of, know generally who might be there and help to help you kind of frame it for yourself too,
0: you know, for sure. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And with the lucky land slot, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash.
0: So you're talking about learning disabilities, there's a broad spectrum of, of things, of conditions or of ways of learning that can be classified as learning disabilities. In your opinion, do you think there are limitations around our knowledge of learning disabilities, especially when it comes to this kind of in the school um, environment, I guess?
1: Yeah. I would say learning disabilities is, is the, the disability we have some of the least information or understanding of. I, maybe information is the wrong way of saying it, but the least Concrete understanding of, like, I think for autism, for example, there's some pretty clear set. Not that it's perfect, but some pretty clear criteria around socialization, communication, and though it is obviously a large spectrum, there is a lot of consistency in what we see in autism. For example, yes. learning disability is less consistent. Um, and you know, as a school psychologist, we we are actually trained in diagnosing learning disabilities, sort of two different ways which I think um, one way is just kind of very high level to talk about it one way is um, looking at a discrepancy between a student's ability and their achievement like so what they're capable of versus what they achieve and another way is looking at how they respond to support so if you give them support does that is that enough to catch them up If not, then maybe they have a learning disability kind of to talk about it really simply just to kind of understand globally, like kind of high level what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Without like digging into the minutiae. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I guess I just say that to say, um, in my opinion, if we don't really know how to diagnose this diagnose it, we're not really sure what it is, (laughs) you know, like if there's not really consistent criteria about what defines it, a learning disability, then there's less consistency. Like I think with autism, we have it a lot more defined and that leads directly to some treatments like visual schedules or structure Mm -hmm. or speech or social work, whereas learning disabilities, it's a lot hazier. So I don't, you know, I don't want parents to get too hung up on the disability label, just get, you know, make sure your kids are getting what they need. So if they're struggling with reading, Pursue outside tutoring if you want, or make sure that they're getting, you know, special education support at schools to get that help and don't get too hung up or don't worry too much about the diagnosis because, you know, we're still learning, we're still in process, just like our students are, we're still figuring out what, what exactly these things are, what to call them, what students needs and the point is really just to make sure students are getting what they need. So. Yes,
0: that's what we're hoping for. And so you as a tutor work one-on-one with folks all the time. And I assume are sort of highly specific in what you're offering each child, right? In a one-on-one service.
1: Yeah. So the way I kind of think of us is like a mini IEP, but not, but you know, and people have, I don't, less I don't want people to, yeah, less <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. And and some people have really negative experiences with their IEP teams. Yeah. And ours are certainly very different, but yeah, every parent um, we speak with, uh, we try to get a really good idea of what their goals are, what their students' histories are, any, any diagnoses that they've got them, as specific as like what their grade level is and where they're, what their instructional level is. Like if they're not a grade level, where are they kind of operating in that grade level or where are their skills at? And then we match the tutor specifically based on that. So some of our tutors specialize in reading, some specialize in math, some specialize in executive functioning skills which are more like the organization time management type skills match specifically with what the student needs with what the tutor does and what they specialize in. That
0: sounds so helpful.
1: Good.
0: <laughs> can, I, you, yeah. can you tell us more about for folks who are interested, where we, can they find more information on you and progress parade and kind of your work? And I will put some links in the show notes below, but.
1: Sure. Just... <laughs> yeah. So they can visit us, visit us at progress and there's, all over that homepage, there's book of free consultation as you're scrolling down, if you click any of those book of free consultations that comes to my calendar. So I do all of our initial consultations, I really want to make sure I'm understanding what their student needs what the goals are kind of all those things we just discussed, um, so that I can choose the best fit for them and we do kind of custom match every single student that comes in with their Perfect tutor who's trained for them. So they can definitely find us at progresspray.com and book a free consultation and talk more with me if they have any other questions or just want to discuss it a little bit.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Danielle. To yeah. sort of wrap us up, is there anything you want to say to parents of disabled or neurodivergent students out there as they go through this kind of scary and overwhelming <laughs> process of getting educated in the public school system?
1: Sure. I would say, you
0: know, you're in the right spot with a podcast like this, you know,
1: self-knowledge and self-advocacy is so huge in special education. It's dealing with a school system, which is a massive bureaucracy for better or for worse. And so keep, you know, knowing, knowing your rights and knowing, you know, and and having a community. So finding like-minded people who need similar things like either through podcasts or Facebook groups, or whatever is going to go a long way towards you feeling supported and you also having the knowledge that you need to support yourself and support your
0: student. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here today. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having me. Neurodiverging is dedicated to helping neurodiverse folks find the resources we need to live better lives as individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as part of the larger world community. If you're interested in learning more, please click the subscribe button to make sure you're notified when there's a new episode. Take a look around at previous podcast episode transcripts and give a listen at neurodiverging.com. Check us out on Patreon to support this podcast and the blog at patreon.com slash NeuroDiverging. Speaking of Patreon, thank you to all of my patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this episode of NeuroDiverging. Transcripts and links are available at NeuroDiverging.com and Laura Reber was our guest today and you can find her and more information about supporting your student in the public school system at ProgressParade.com. See you next time and remember we are all in this together.